one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 437, for the week of Monday, November 26th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and we have a light crew tonight. Joining me tonight is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Oh, I thought you were introducing somebody else. I've never uh, really thought of myself as light, at least not in the last few decades. (laughs) I do appreciate that, and it's good to be here. It's great to have you with us, Mark, and you'll notice that we're missing somebody tonight. Gene McCulka had a family matter to deal with, so Mark and I are going to be handling our heavy load of stories tonight, and we're going to be bringing them to you. Let's just let the stories speak for themselves, and let's get things started right away. We do have some stories. Yes, we do. We've got a bunch of them for you, and let's start things off on the red planet Mars. And we're going to go to our good friend, the Mars Science Laboratory, a.k.a. Curiosity. Now, Curiosity has made, supposedly, an Earth-shattering, or should I say, Mars-shattering, discovery. On board the rover is an instrument called SAM, which is the Sample Analysis at Mars instrument, which has taken in some Martian soil and apparently has some exciting news. According to an interview with NPR... John Grotzinger, who's the lead mission investigator for Curiosity, has said, quote, We're getting data from Sam. This data is going to be one for the history books. It's looking really good. What is that news? Well, we don't know, to be honest. And it probably won't be announced until this year's American Geophysical Union meeting in San Francisco to be held from December 3rd through December 7th, according to an article from MSNBC.com. The other thing is that some people are saying that this sounds great and it might be something that's groundbreaking, while others are saying it's nothing to be overexcited about. For example, Chris McKay from NASA's Ames Research Center said, quote, this is going to be a disappointment. The press description of the SAM results as earth-shaking is, in my view, an unfortunate exaggeration. We have not found anything in SAM that was not already known for previous missions, Phoenix and Viking. What do you think, Mark? Well, I'm pretty sure I've met Chris McKay. Uh, I believe he was one of the track chairs at the first 100-year Starship Symposium that I went to. And I was impressed with him. And so tell me again, what is his basic summary of this? A disappointment? He's basically saying it's overhyped. Well, you know, the press would never do that, would they? (laughs) No, not in the least. Yeah, but seriously, you know, the things that we've already heard when they talk about the composition of some of the soil, I mean, 
there there is weekly, just about I think weekly releases of information as to the the scientists saying this is what we found, and of course some of what they're finding is initial analysis, and so if they've got an announcement that's going to be more in depth, they're going to have more to tell us. Whether it's going to be is uh, something earth shaking, who knows? Right. I mean. They haven't released any of it because they were waiting for a second sample, which the second sample was taken on November 12th. And there may end up being a third and fourth samples to confirm it. For example, there was original indication from one of the first tests that they had found methane on Mars. And when you think of methane, you usually think of a byproduct of life. They didn't release this information because that was only after one test, and they were concerned that it might have been from Earth. Well, it turns out, after a second test, they were right. It was from Earth, and the amount of methane had dropped significantly. So, you know, there, there's always that concern. So we'll, we'll all find out together what it was. And that's going to be announced on what day at what, what event again? It's supposed to be announced at the American Geophysical Union meeting at San Francisco, December 3rd through 7th. Well, you know, one thing we're not going to miss is hearing about it, because from what I see here, and of course, reflecting on talking to John Yembrick and Jason Townsend with NASA social media last week, there's a NASA social at the American Geophysical Union meeting on those days. So we're going to have NASA social folks making sure we don't miss it. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that, to be honest. So, yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye out for the NASA social tweets. Very cool. Now I'm excited. <laughs> Me too. I'm glad of all people of the NASA social people will get to be one of the first ones to hear it. And we'll find out probably from them faster than we will from any of the other organizations. <laughs> Don't you love it? That's the beauty of social media. Anyway, while we're hanging out on Mars, Mark, you have a couple more stories for us? Yeah, let's spend some more time on Mars. One of them I'm going to do real quick, and I think this is just plain fun. Uh, NASA Curiosity rover is probably uh, the first to check in on Foursquare from Mars. And uh, Curiosity rover checked in on back in early October. This is uh, not a fresh story, but I think it's fun to mention you can keep up with Curiosity as it checks in at key locations and it posts photos and tips. If you want to follow Mars Curiosity on Foursquare, just go to www.foursquare.com slash Mars Curiosity and you can see its check-ins and where it's been. <laughs> that is so clever and creative. Again, talking about the power of social media right there. We've got rovers checking in from 300 million miles away. Now, the other thing I've got has to do also with Curiosity. One of the things that it's been studying since it arrived on Mars, believe it or not, has been the wind patterns, uh, radiation patterns, as it explores. Now, they're using it to, they've identified some transient whirlwinds. They've mapped winds in relation to the slopes because it's in between the crater and the, the slope of Mount Sharp. But they're tracking daily and seasonal changes in air pressure. They're, link, they're linking these rhythmic changes also in radiation to daily atmospheric changes. So 
if you ever wanted to be a meteorologist, there's a whole other world out there when you start thinking about the conditions of the weather on Mars. I remember reading, I read something recently reminding me of this, that with uh, Spirit and Opportunity, now those rovers were powered by solar cells, and the longer they were on the planet, they periodically got covered up with dust, and they started to see the performance of their solar cells fall off. And then surprisingly, they saw them improve. And that was when, you know, the winds actually blew the dust off of the rover. So that kept them going. Well, Curiosity, you know, they went with the intent of making sure that they got more science and more information about the weather. And they did. They've got an environment, environmental monitoring station that can measure dips in air pressure, a change in wind direction, changes in wind speed, rises in air temperature, and a dip in an ultraviolet reading reaching the rover. Two of the events that they've measured included all five of these characteristics. Uh, dust has a, a big role in shaping what's happening with the climate. The dominant wind direction identified has surprised some researchers. They expected the slope effects of where they are in relation to the crater rim and the mountain to produce north-south winds. The rover is just north of a mountain called Mount Sharp. They expected air movements to be up and down the mountain slope. And dominant winds would generally be north-south. However, they're also seeing east-west winds, and they're saying that they predominate, and they're guessing that the rim of the Gale Crater may be a factor. So this is one of those things that you would think that, that we would know what would be happening just based on the geology, but not so. There's surprises in store. One of the things that's exciting about understanding these characteristics of the atmosphere you know, they're looking at present-day weather, but the better they understand what's happening now, they may be able to estimate how the cycles may have operated in the past. They have seasonal changes that increase uh, the amounts of carbon dioxide that's frozen on the poles during the, the, the wintertime on the, the, the southern part of the planet versus the change in the seasons. So carbon dioxide is released from, from frozen form on the, on the poles as they go into summertime. And these cycles affect the winds, affect the weather. There's just a lot of really interesting things going on that has the scientists excited about it. And uh, they're using all the other instruments, of course, to do the science that we've already talked about and hope to hear more about soon. That's really cool. And obviously, this isn't the first time that they've been looking at weather on Mars. And it won't be the last because the next mission to Mars, which NASA calls their discovery missions, is going to be a lander that will drill down into the surface of Mars, but will also be a weather station. So they're really interested in the wind patterns on Mars, and this is a huge discovery. I want to say uh, Mars Phoenix actually had a little bit of, of some type of material off of a, a vertical, I'm going to call it a mast or a vertical, some component of Mars Phoenix, that with the camera, they actually saw this this little bit of material actually standing out and changing changing its uh, orientation. So Mars Curiosity had the uh, you know the the simple equivalent of a windsock to get some idea of what was happening with weather, and 
And here we are with Curiosity with some even greater capabilities with these instruments that it's measuring the, the pressures and temperatures and ultraviolet and wind speed and direction. And man, that's cool. I, I work in the weather world. In a few weeks, I'll be checking calibration on weather sensors at one of the airports I work at. And, you know, weather is, some, is funny to me because some people are really fascinated by it. You can't do anything about it as evidenced by so much that, that we relate to recently. But it's still interesting as can be to to see how it develops and how close it tracks to what they expect. And who knows, maybe someday we'll be getting a weather forecast from Mars. Alrighty then, so that concludes round one around the table with just the two of us. And I think that was a pretty smooth round. So let's do it again. Let's move on to round number two. And on our second round around our table here, we're going to move on to SpaceX. As we know... On the previous mission, which was CRS-1, the first operational resupply mission to the International Space Station per the private company based out of Hawthorne, California, they had a couple of problems on it. One was a little bit more well-known, and that was the engine failure. Now, one of the nine Merlin engines failed about 79 seconds after liftoff, in which the engine was commanded to shut down after a sudden loss in pressure. Now, they don't have an official reason for that yet, but they're still going to be looking into it, and they're expecting one in a few weeks. And note that this article that I'm taking this from was posted November 14th on SpaceFlightNow.com, so we're talking a little bit of a while ago. The reason I bring this up, though, is that because most people know about the engine failure, most people don't know about the other failures. One that we have discussed on this show was a small satellite called an Orbcom satellite, which is supposed to be a prototype for a new generation of data communication satellites. But because of the engine shutdown, the Orbcom was not able to be propelled into its proper orbit and was then subsequently deorbited, not by choice. And they are filing an insurance claim on that. So there's one little minor thing, but that, that's not related to SpaceX and the Dragon capsule. The following are, on top of that, while it was at the space station, it took a suspected radiation hit. And that radiation hit took out one of Dragon's three main flight computers, according to Mike Suffredini. Engineers also believe that radiation shut down one of Dragon's three GPS navigation units, a propulsion computer, and an Ethernet switch during the flight. However, those controllers were able to recover to fully operational status. Now, you know, that's interesting that happened in space. That it? No, actually. On Splashdown, it's believed that the Glacier Freezer, which carried biological samples, may have lost power, raising the temperature slightly. Will that affect some of the samples? There's a good possibility that some of those samples may be affected, some of them may be lost, but scientists aren't so worried. They should be able to recover it. Just to give you an idea of the temperature, though, the freezer was set at minus 139 degrees Fahrenheit. Upon recovery, it was minus 85. That's a pretty big temperature loss. So you've had a temperature loss in one of your science returns. You had a, some major component failures and a computer failure due to lack of radiation hardening on your computers, which SpaceX engineers said was because it is cheaper and the computers typically run faster. But as a note... All of the other resupply vehicles to the space station, including ESA's and JAXA's resupply ships, all have radiation-hardened computers on it. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, I would have taken it for granted that anything that uh, would go into orbit would have radiation-hardened equipment because just as a for instance, and I looked this up knowing that you wanted to talk about it, um, AMS-2, which was the $2 billion science package that went up on the final flight of your baby Endeavor to the space station, AMS-2 is a cosmic ray detector. And since launch in 2011, in May of 2011, uh, as of a, maybe a week or so ago, they tweeted out on their account, AMSISS, that they've reached 25 billion measured events. That's 25 billion cosmic rays went through the AMS-2 detector. So it makes sense to me that anything that's up there is going to have a cosmic ray at some time or other go zipping through. And no matter how solid we think something is, it's essentially like a, a particle of dust going through a screen door. And that's probably not even close to the analogy of, of what the deal is with cosmic rays and matter. But, um, yeah, stuff's going to happen. I remember a camera that, that I read about that was on the space station and uh, that they wanted to keep it there to find out what happened in space with radiation affecting the the detecting element of these modern digital cameras and that they were seeing um, you know dropouts of pixels on the detector because of radiation hits on the camera so it's a fact of life it's going to happen so what do you think about all these anomalies as a whole i mean it was their first operational flight but do you think this is going to be a problem for them in the future, all of these technical glitches? Well, they got redundancy. Um, but, you know, they've got flight rules they have to follow, too. And, golly, it would, you would hate to have them be in a position to be moving into dock with the station and, and lose some system to where they would have to go to a wave-off point and, you know, possibly not be able to dock or to have an undocking that... Uh, you know, they would anticipate normal re-entry and return and recovery of the Dragon capsule and and have that not go according to plan and, and lose the capsule because they couldn't do a proper re-entry. Um, I mean, it's not, like, it's not like you can fix anything. Once it launches, it's got to work either perfectly or well enough. And, of course, CRS-1 worked well enough. It sure didn't work perfectly from what you're saying. I didn't realize there were that many problems that they had. Not a lot of people did. And the other thing that is a concern is that of all the other resupply vehicles, this is the only one, even of the other commercial one, when you have Orbital with their Cygnus, this is the only one that is capable of returning any items to Earth. And upon return, one of the things they were carrying, the, the Glacier Freezer, failed. Is that a concern, maybe? If you're someone who would consider bringing up an experiment and wanting it to return? Oh, yeah. And I sat at a press briefing uh, pre-launch for CRS-1, and a scientist from Johnson Space Center talked about the down mass, the, the, the samples they were going to have, blood and urine samples from these astronauts that have 
you know, been stored on station since the last flight of the shuttle that they wanted to get down and get to their lab and analyze because that helps them understand the effects of, of zero G on the human body over extended times. And they really wanted those samples. And I forget the number. I want to say, Oh, 288 sticks in my mind. That's probably not right. But, but they had, you know, several hundred plus some of these samples that they wanted. And, um, uh, you know that's called a setback if they, if that was affected, and then I think they were optimistic that they recovered the samples quick enough and cold enough to where you know maybe there wasn't a, a loss of integrity of the data that they would get from them once they got to the lab. I don't know. As NASA Johnson Space Center spokesperson Josh Barley said, "quote It wasn't a severe impact in terms of the temperature increase." who added the power snafu would not affect any contractual payments to SpaceX. But that's still interesting to think of. And, you know, of course, you think about that. They've got a certain amount of time to recover the capsule, get it on the ship, get to shore, uh, open it up and recover the things that they need to recover and keep cold like out of the glacier. And um, I guess there are many, many reasons that, could cause problems with that so it's not necessarily the end of the world either um but you want everything to go perfect all the time true but then again not even every space shuttle mission went perfect but i was thinking of that as i was saying that (laughs) (laughs) yeah it it wasn't without its uh difficulties for sure exactly but we'll obviously be keeping a close eye on them and their next mission which was originally scheduled for december and january after that, has now been continually pushed back, and the next launch date is looking at approximately March 1st. All right, so we'll step away from SpaceX now, and Mark, I believe you have two more for us, correct? You betcha. Let's talk about, oh, I'm not feeling so good. I, I don't feel so good. This rocking and swinging and spinning and stuff is getting to me. Everybody look out. No, I'm just kidding. Now, this is in the uh, realm of NASA spinoffs. And NASA, it's actually not real news, but it's something I've been holding on to because I thought it was just extremely interesting. But NASA's Johnson Space Center and EpioMed Therapeutics, Inc. of Irvine, California, have signed an agreement to develop and commercialize a NASA-crafted, fast-acting nasal spray to fight motion sickness. Now, we were talking before we got started, Sawyer. I think the term space adaptation sickness is what we agreed on that the astronauts sometimes have to deal with when they go from launch to zero-G. Correct. Well, you know, this was developed to help that because... It wasn't predictable from what I understand. You didn't necessarily know if you were going to be susceptible to it or not. And the astronauts that were, they had to soldier on. They had to, um, I guess, get the uh, space sickness bag and, and you know, deal with it because there are things that had to be done when they got to orbit. Well, so we, here we go from astronauts to something that's going to benefit us here on the ground. And that's what I think is really impressive. But they've done extensive research into the causes and treatments. This is a drug called intranasal scopolamine, or INSCOP, I-N-S-C-O-P. 
they're going to work on future development, NASA and EpioMed, to optimize the therapeutic efficiency for both acute and chronic treatment of motion signals. This could be used by NASA, Department of Defense, world travelers on land, in the air, and on the seas, says the developer of this innovative treatment at Johnson. They have a gel formulation of it that they've developed and tested under a Space Act agreement between Johnson Space Center and the Naval Aerospace Medical Research Lab in Pensacola, Florida. Results of that trial were published in the journal Aviation, Space, and Environmental Medicine in April of 2010, and they suggest that NSCOP is a fast-acting and reliable way to prevent and treat motion sickness. The U.S. Navy is working on an agreement with EpioMed to test the nasal spray, and NASA and EpioMed will collaborate on clinical trials related to the Federal Drug Administration requirements. NASA is transferring the sponsorship of future clinical trials and FDA approvals to EpioMed, which will supply the product for use by NASA and others. Go NASA. Your tax dollars at work and Anybody that's ever dealt with motion sickness, anything, if there's anything that helps, you know that they want it. Because I've, I've seen people and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> uh, gee whiz, I've seen people who have taken vacations like cruises and just, if things don't go well, all you got to do is, all you can do is just, just hope for it to ease off and get better. And it's good to hear that NASA is doing something that has real world application. So that's one of my stories. That's great. You know, again, everyone wonders, what does NASA do for me? Well, there's one thing. Because I know that motion sickness, especially space adaptation sickness, it's like you said, it's something that astronauts don't know if they're going to get or not. And it's one of the worst things to have is, you know, you don't know if you're going to get it or not. They still don't actually know why some people get it and some people don't. But if they can help for those who do have it here on Earth, that's great. Let's keep going on. Mark, you have a second one for us? Let's go to video games. I mean, a lot of people uh, really live for the opportunity when they're going to sit down and play a, a video game and well here we are it, believe it or not this has to do with nasa but there's a video game paradise at saturn this has been discovered by our friend the cassini spacecraft cassini has completed its initial four-year mission to explore the saturn system it completed that in june of 2008 it's completed their first extended mission called the cassini equinox mission in september of 2010 and now this healthy spacecraft is making exciting new discoveries. And they're currently in an extension that they're calling the Solstice Mission for the Saturnian Summer Solstice, which will occur in May of 2017. Now what they've found that relates to video games is some image of two of the moons of Saturn. The first was discovered in a uh, thermal image of MIMAS, and pardon my pronunciation if I don't have this right, but M-I-M-A-S, in 2010. The pattern looks like a Pac-Man video game character. And recently they got another image from the moon Tethys that's also, and so we'll include the link to that, but it looks like two Pac-Mans facing each other, chomp, 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 chomp. But this was obtained by thermal data, attained by Cassini's composite infrared spectrometer with warmer areas making up the image of the Pac-Man. Now, finding a second in the Saturn system tells us that the processes of creating these 
Pac-Man images, which is the thermal difference on the face of the moon, is more widespread than they thought. It could turn out to be a veritable arcade of these characters as they look at the, the moons of Saturn. But they think it has to do with the high-energy electrons that bombard the low latitudes on the side of the moon that faces forward as it orbits around Saturn. Bombardment that turns part of the fluffy surface into hard-packed ice. As a result, the altered surface doesn't heat up as rapidly in the sunshine or cool down as quickly at night as the rest of the surface, similar to how a, like a boardwalk at a beach feels cooler during the day but warmer during the night than the nearby sand. Finding the second Pac-Man on Tethys confirms that high-energy electrons can dramatically alter the surface of an icy moon. So I think this is kind of fun, especially when you see the pictures of it. <laughs> Pardon me, I'm having too much fun. That's okay. All we need now are the ghosts. I suggest renaming the moons Inky, Pinky, Blinky, and Dot. That's my suggestion. <laughs> We're having too much fun. We need to get serious here. Yes, we do, but then again, this is talking space. As much as we get serious, we get silly. So, And nobody to keep us straight this time around. Right, that's the problem. It's you and I. We're trouble together. <laughs> we have one more trip around the table before you can get rid of us lunatics, or you can always click pause and close out of your window, but I suggest you don't do that. So we got a couple more great stories coming up. And in our final trip around the table, we're going to be starting with Shuttle Retirement. Wait a minute, aren't the shuttles all retired? Aren't they all in their new homes and getting prepared? Well, yes, they are. But three shuttles had to get to their locations on top of NASA's modified Boeing 747 jet, commonly known as NASA 905, also its tail number. NASA 905, its mission was complete. People weren't sure what was going to be done with it. There were two of the modified 747s. One of them was used for spare parts for the SOFIA mission, which is a telescope mounted in the back of a different 747. So one of them was used for parts, but what about this one? The one that carried most of the shuttles. This one will now be put on permanent display at Ellington Fields in Houston, Texas. So Houston may not have gotten a space shuttle, but they have gotten a space shuttle carrier. Now, official displays have not been announced yet of what they will exactly be doing and how it will be displayed but all we know is that it will be located at ellington as its final resting place mark you've been inside of that thing haven't you oh yeah and i mean i'm an airplane nut I, you can put me around an airport and I'll, I'll i'll watch planes take off and land and just fly i think it's fascinating and in April of this year, April 2012, when 905 was in the pattern and we saw it on final to land at the shuttle landing facility for the Discovery Departure events there at KSC, I was excited. And, man, that's a big old plane. And it landed and taxied and just seeing it on the ramp by itself. It's super impressive with the shuttle made it to it, you know, ready to, to go on a uh, ferry flight. But just seeing the aircraft is so incredibly impressive to 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 see that they came up with a way to modify it to carry the shuttle and then to go inside and to realize this is an empty airplane it's a whole lot of empty and uh, i remember talking to the crew and them describing what it was like to to walk back in the uh i guess it'd be the the passenger deck if it if it had seats 
but uh, to walk to the back and to go to a window and look up and see the wing of the shuttle above. And I mean, this is a lot of history. And I think that anybody that gets an opportunity to see 905 and when it's set up for display and hopefully it'll be part of some special stuff there at Ellington. Um, I think it'll be another stop to put on your list of cool space places and, and space hardware to, to get close to. What are you hoping to see out of an exhibit like that? Cause I mean, with the space shuttle exhibit, we can kind of figure that out, but what would you think for an exhibit for NASA 905? What would you want to see? I would want to do pretty much what I did at KSC. I would I would be thrilled for the opportunity to to go on board, to travel from essentially uh, not far behind the the front of the aircraft where the the bump is on the 747. From that point all the way to the back and to see the tremendous length of it and um, to see that interior to walk just forward of there and to see what was first class seating in place. And I mean, the plane is essentially unchanged from when it was bought from the airlines. I mean, modifications, yes, but the uh, first class seating is, far as I could tell, it looked like the original seats. It still had ashtrays in the armrests. That was back when smoking was, was common in air travel. Um, to go upstairs and to be able to see the, uh, the flight deck pilot, co-pilot, flight engineer. It was a three-man aircraft. They had a pilot, co-pilot, and an engineer that flew that plane. And uh, to see their instruments and to realize, you know, this is old technology. No glass cockpit, all gauges and 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 good old-fashioned type instruments like you would have seen on that plane in the 60s. Still there, still works, and did the job just the way it needed to be done. I would want to see that stuff. That would be cool, especially to go inside it and see that. Just so you know, the 747 NASA 905 was the 86 747 built, was rolled out in 1970, and it first flew October 15, 1970 for the carrier American Airlines and was then acquired by the Johnson Space Center in 1974 for the space shuttle program. So a lot of history behind that. And uh, hopefully we'll get to see what that exhibit will be, and we can't wait to hear what the official announcement of the exhibit will be and when we'll get to go inside of it. Two things I think are really cool. One time I saw a brand spanky new airplane. It was a regional jet. It was maybe a 50-passenger jet, but it was brand spanking new. And to see an aircraft and to look at the outer skin, you know, to look along the fuselage and the wings... And to see how smooth and how how shiny and pretty. I was impressed. And it, here, okay, I'm an FAA guy. I'm a technician. I'm not a pilot. I've never held the controls of an airplane. I've never had the opportunity. I've never been invited up on the cockpit in flight. Nowadays, you can pretty much forget that. 20 years ago, an airline pilot told me it was easier for him to fly jump seat on another airline than it was for him to ride jump seat on his own carrier. But anyway, that's another story. And the other thing I think is really cool is the older planes. And when you see something that's old and you see something that's been around 40 years, 50 years, some aircraft, golly, DC-3s, you're talking uh, aircraft that were built in the 30s and, I mean, the 1930s and the 1940s. 
to see planes from that era. I like it. I just think it's impressive. A testament to the engineering and to the uh, quality of what was built. Right. Many people think about the engineering behind the space shuttle and how that was an amazing feat of engineering. But the Boeing 747 is an impressive feat itself and all the modifications that they've made to it. I think it'll be really interesting for people to see a different side of the ingenuity, the way that they could carry that huge technological masterpiece across the country. All right, now we're just about done here, but Mark, you've got two final stories to wrap us up, don't you? Sure enough. Let's talk about astronauts. In the two and a half years, actually, I guess, uh, yeah, it's been two and a half years since the first time I was uh, at Kennedy Space Center as media, press, whatever you want to call me have talked with a number of astronauts, a lot of the managers, technicians, shuttle workers here and there. And one of the people that I had the privilege of meeting and shaking his hand was Michael Coates. Michael Coates was, is, was, is, was, is, was, can't decide where to start. Uh, NASA astronaut, when Michael Coates retires at the end of this year, uh, he will have served uh, NASA well and his career as JSC director started in 2005. His successor is the current deputy director, Ellen Okoa, and she's been there since September 2007. But the Shuttle Discovery's last flight was an opportunity for Gina Hurley and myself to meet with Michael Coates, and she interviewed him. And if you go back to episode 309 from Talking Space, which we aired in March of 2011, you'll hear an interview that uh, she conducted with him. And he was Discovery's first pilot. And I just think it's interesting to, to, to take somebody who has worked their way up through the agency. I mean, you look at his bio, military pilot, special honors that he's received from the military, from civilian organizations. He worked in industry. He left NASA after he left uh, as an astronaut. He retired, went to work for Laurel Space Information Systems. He's been part of uh, Lockheed Martin Missile in Space in California, vice president of advanced space transportation, and then he came back to NASA to be the Johnson Space Center director. Anyway, I think it's just interesting to see somebody that has made their mark in space flight and the space program to have served and going on to some great times in the rest of their life and uh, congratulations yes indeed i mean that's one big accomplishment to give the inaugural flight basically of the workhorse of the space shuttle program in the end having flown i believe the most flights of all the orbiters i mean congratulations to him and wishing him all the best now my last little story that i'd like to pitch in isn't anything particularly related to spaceflight and science and all of that but it's more of a personal note for us here at talking space a few weeks ago we announced that uh, we were out of commission for a week and doing a show because of the impact from Hurricane Sandy on New York, New Jersey area. And one of the reasons that uh, we decided to scrub was an email that I got informing us that our website 
which of course is TalkingSpaceOnline.com, our website is hosted by a company called Squarespace. And Squarespace sent out an email that they described as one of the most difficult they've ever had to send to their customers to where they expected to lose their server facility in New York and that they had no hope for keeping it up. And, of course, what happened was power was out in in large areas of New York and New Jersey. Their building is in a place called Pier 1 in downtown Manhattan. It was so impacted they totally lost power. They had multiple levels of redundant systems. They lost them. Basement of the building they were in flooded. They had generators that were operating, but they couldn't get the fuel to them. Fuel was in tanks at uh, ground level or basement level, and generators that they had that were providing service were up on the 17th floor. Well, the thing that I want to mention about Squarespace is that they had a an attitude that they absolutely couldn't, they didn't want to fail their customers. And employees from Squarespace, Fog Creek, and Pier 1 carried fuel up 17 flights of stairs for three days to power their generators until they could get an interim fuel supply and pump to get installed to keep them secure in their in their backup power. And we've talked about uh, how things can happen and fail and unforeseen things. And here's a case where the people that provide the hosting for our website did something that I would call impossible. I mean, how could you carry enough fuel up 17 flights of stairs for a short period of time, much less three days? So I just kind of like to give a tip of the hat to Squarespace. And if anybody wants to find out more about them, go to our webpage and on our homepage, TalkingSpaceOnline.com. You will see a little link down in the bottom corner that says Powered by Squarespace. And if you want to click on that, take a look around, you may find a place that you'd like to have host your website. Yes, I mean, (laughs) it's not one of those things that you think about when you think of Hurricane Sandy. I mean, you think of, obviously, all the people who've lost their power and lost their homes and things like that. But then again, you have these small little things that make a huge impact, like people carrying gasoline up. 17 floors to keep websites going so to all the people at squarespace thank you and just so you know we're not getting any discounts for saying this so we're just saying this because we think that what they did was amazing and the fact that our site stayed up we thank them greatly for that all right well i said that was going to be our last trip around the table i lied i'm going to add in one more story here at the end that i saw while we were in the middle of recording and i thought couldn't be passed up Time Magazine, every year, has its Person of the Year, and it has now unveiled its People's Choice candidates. Some of them are some major newsmakers, like Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, Fifty Shades of Grey author E.L. James, Korean singer Psy. Those are somewhat expected. But these are the ones that are really unexpected because every single one of these are topics that we have discussed on this show, one of them even tonight. Three unlikely candidates for Time Magazine's Person of the Year are Australian skydiver Felix Baumgartner. I mean, that one you can understand, setting a world record skydive from space, essentially. 
the Higgs boson particle, and Mars Curiosity rover, better known as the Mars Science Laboratory to us here. What do you think of that? I mean, the person of the year, you have a particle and a rover. I can understand Felix Baumgartner, but Higgs boson and Curiosity? What do you think of this one? i got to admit, this is something that I've... Uh not paid the closest attention to at times when we get to this, you know, end of the year and these type stories. But uh, when they put three things on there that uh, are, are part of our beat, if you want to call it that, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm confused that it's the person of the year and yet you have a rover and a particle. Isn't that a little bizarre? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't doubt the impact that it's had to society, but I just find that amazing. That I mean, I, that is the people's choice selection, so you can actually go online and vote for one of them. In fact, tonight I've already voted for the Mars Curiosity rover. But I, I just found that really interesting. Of all the things, I mean, you've got Secretary of State, you've got a famous U- pop singer through YouTube, and then you have the Higgs boson. I just find that hysterical and amazing at the same time. Well, this is something that uh, if it's voting by the public, I'm, I'm guessing from what you said. I haven't looked at the uh, website, but people can vote on it. And I guess this will, you know, when the uh, when it stops. Voting closes 11.59 p.m. on December 12th, and the winner will be announced on December 14th. There are 40 candidates, and a link to the website where you can vote on Time's website will be included in the description of this show. (laughs) That's pretty good. So let's vote for your favorite. I'm right there with you, Sawyer. Curiosity's got mine. Because in terms of current results, the Mars rover is currently... In fifth place. Uh, we can fix that. In 11th place is the Higgs boson. In 12th place is Felix Baumgartner. Go ahead and vote. All part of the friendly service we like to offer our listeners. Alrighty then. So with that, this insanity that is episode 437 is now at its conclusion. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Hang tight. This is going to be a long list. Thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for joining us, Sawyer. Wouldn't have been the same without you. <laughs> Would have been a little quieter, that's for sure. But anyway, we'd like to thank you, of course, for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for us, for example, of us to never do the two of us again, or if you like the two of us, let us know. Drop us a line, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Of course, there's our Twitter account, at TalkingSpace, and our page, Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. That's probably the most odd request we've ever sent in for emails. On that odd note, though, we will be back next week, hopefully back to regular strength, and we hope that you will be joining us once again. But... Until then, of course, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.